BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, August 15th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you could subscribe to the show if you don't already on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on topics like science, history, philosophy, and many more, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on CD and DVD. But the best part is, is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams or even going to class. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses. It's called Your Deceptive Mind by Professor Stephen Novella. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. I think many of our listeners will already know that I have for a very long time been writing about the politics of science. And so the issue of what is called fracking was of particular interest to me for a lot of reasons. Now, many of you have heard of this already. Fracking basically is drilling for natural gas deep down in shale formations, which can be a mile or more underneath the earth using really complex technology, which includes drilling horizontally and blasting water at huge pressures. Now, the reason I bring it up in the context of politics is that the right, the political right, uses this as a central case study for liberals getting science wrong. Uh, They say fracking isn't that risky. They say the leftover exaggerates the risk because they hate corporations, yada, yada. And I kind of have been sympathetic to that argument. I, I kind of took that stance in Scientific American in an article in 2011. And also in my book, The Republican Brain, I pointed out some exaggerations about fracking. But since that time, the science has evolved and developed. In particular, the research has gotten clearer on two subjects that you got to call pretty concerning related to fracking. One of them is the relationship with earthquakes. And the other one is... Uh, the emissions of fugitive methane or fugitive natural gas during drilling operations or transportation of the gas or, or whatnot. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, makes global warming worse. So I decided it was time to really hear the science behind the anti-fracking case, even if I'm not 100% there myself. But it is concerning, and I think we need to hear it. So for this, I turned to a scientist at Cornell named Anthony Ingraffia. He is a professor of engineering. He has a long history of working with oil and gas companies to figure out how to get hydrocarbon resources out of the ground or out of the rock. But recently, he's become a pretty strong scientific critic of the whole endeavor of natural gas extraction from what they call the unconventional gas reserves or the shale gas reserves. And here's a little clip of what he had to say to me. Humankind will always need fossil energy and fossil fuels for some uses. We will always need lubricants. It's going to be a few generations before we figure out how to fly on a battery. 
so we need fuel for aircraft. We will need to use certain fossil fuels for certain industrial processes, for creating certain materials, including medicinal things. But we should have stopped or se severely slowed down our use of fossil fuels for what I call stupid reasons decades ago. And those stupid reasons are heating our homes, driving our cars, and generating electricity because we have far more efficient, far more useful, and far less polluting and climate-influencing ways of heating our homes, moving our vehicles, and generating electricity. So I think he makes a really good point in that clip is that, you know, I always thought, well, we just got to get rid of fossil fuels and our reliance on them, you know, straight away, but, or just outright. But in fact, he's saying, actually, we're going to need them for some specific things that we can't get from other forms of energy. Uh, and so, and if we want to protect that, then we need to start thinking other, of other ways to, to get energy for the things that, you know, are not, can rely on any kind of source. Yep. I mean, I think we definitely got to get off fossil fuels. The fight is really over how fast we can. And there are really a lot of <laughs> differing views on that. And I think he's in the he's in the strong get off them fast camp. And my, my only hesitation, it's a great interview. I really learned a lot from it. My only hesitation is just as the, as the realist, you just have such entrenched fossil fuel interests and systems as you have to wonder whether whether that can actually happen. And I, I loved Mark Ruffalo's quote that, you know, the uh, an oil spill in solar is really just a sunny day. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That was from our Mark um, Ruffalo show. Although I recently did hear about a big solar farm in California that is a danger to birds, that actually when birds fly too close to it, they actually burst into flames. Wow. So well, maybe I, that's... You can see how that would happen. I mean, it's so yeah. much energy, right? But overall, I would say the risk-benefit ratio still favors solar. Definitely. Definitely. And we will, especially as the case against fracking mounts, as we'll hear. Um, so that's going to be our main interview for today. But first, let's talk about science-related topics in the news. As everybody in America pretty much knows right now, we have had yet another one of these horrible shootings of an unarmed black male. This was in Ferguson, Missouri, a predominantly black community with a predominantly white police force. And it's just uh, it's a suburb of St. Louis. The details of what happened aren't clear. They're usually not clear this close after when it happened, and sometimes they're never fully clear. But the police claim that Michael Brown, the 18-year-old teenager who was killed, got into an altercation with the white police officer, and allegedly, they say, Brown tried to take his gun, but others tell a different story about what happened, and the whole thing is contested. We, do, we just don't know. But here is something that we do know uh, from psychology research, from science. Racial stereotypes, which are all over our society, they are certainly present in Ferguson. They are present everywhere. They can influence these kinds of life and death uh, split-second decisions, including decisions about whether a person poses a danger to you. And I want to tell you about an experiment that I think is uh, potentially relevant, although we don't know for sure, to what's happened. And this, this is called the weapon identification task. It has two variations. It has a number of variations. But basically, the experiment is you show research subjects one of two objects. One of them is a gun, and the other is something about the same size but harmless, a tool like a wrench. Okay, And then you ask them to press a button, and they have to press it fast to say what they're seeing. And the speed is very important. But right before they get to see the object, you flash either a black face or a white face. It turns out that when you do this, people are more likely to mistake a tool for a gun right after seeing a black face than after seeing a white face. Why is that? There is a stereotypic association in many people's heads. They get it from our culture uh, between African Americans and guns. It is So it's something that's automatically in people's heads, or that's what the researchers think is the cause. And this has been found in a number of studies. So there's every reason to think that in real life, in split-second moments, you can also perceive something related to a gun that might not actually be real. So I am not saying this explains uh, this particular incident or other similar incidents. But I am saying, you know, the more we are aware of the power of these unconscious processes and unconscious biases, uh, you know, our society is going to be a lot better off because right now, uh, look, there's every reason to think they can do a lot of damage. And I just want to clarify a subtle but important point. You know, when people say, oh, our brains are wired for X. We were born to do, 
you know, why. And let's say that is to make associations between things. That's true. Um, but on the other hand, the content of those associations is very much learned and very much depends on our culture and our experience. So even just taking that, that's that study that you described. The interesting thing is that it's not just white people who make this stereotype. So it's not just that, you know, we've got this kind of, you know, in group out group issue. It's that in our culture, we have learned to associate black people with guns more often than we associate white people with guns. And that's, that's really where culture and science meet. And that's where we start need to start making some major changes. Yeah, no, it's surrounding us. And then you have these horrible tragedies, and you don't know the extent to which what exactly causes them. And yet, you know, that it's all around us. And so you have to think that it is playing some kind of a role. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's been a bit of a sad week in general. Another bit of sad news is the the death of, by apparent suicide, of beloved comedian Robin Williams. So let me start off right off the bat to say that I want to respect the family's request for privacy. So all I will say about Robin Williams himself is that I loved his work. I think he had that rare combination of genius and compassion. And I really feel that we've lost a genuine treasure, especially in San Francisco, which is, you know, where he lived. But I don't know about, nor do I want to speculate about his own mental health or the events that led up to his death. Let's put that aside. Instead, I want to talk about suicide in general, and it's linked to depression and addiction in particular. So so there's some evidence, of course, that in terms of making changes to their lives, people do find personal anecdotes and stories more compelling. So like, for example, if you're trying to convince someone to get a mammogram, tell them a story about how, you know, you got a mammogram and it saved your life. Um But people find statistics actually more convincing when it comes right down to it. So the media outlets out there are going to give you lots of great stories about Robin Williams. But here today, I want to focus on the stats. So let's start out with the lifetime prevalence of major depressive disorder. It's 16% in the US. Um, and so that's actually a major portion of the population. And one of the really sad things about major depressive disorder is that only about 20% of cases are successfully treated. That means that most people who have depression do not feel that their treatment is successful. Now, if you have depression, you're also two and a half times more likely to have a substance abuse problem. So we know that drug addiction and depression are often comorbid. That is, if you have one diagnosis, you're more likely to also have the other than the general population. And here we come to the chicken and egg problem, right? Is it that people are self-medicating using drugs to fight their symptoms of depression? Or is it that because they're on drugs, they become depressed because of the effects that drugs have on their lives? And, you know, it goes both ways. What is true is that when we diagnose disorders like depression or substance abuse, we're talking about behaviors here. What are people doing? How are they feeling? And because the behaviors of these two disorders are fairly similar, their issues, their, their, um, you know, misregulating emotions and your motivation, et cetera, the brain regions that are involved in the conditions also overlap. But instead of disorders like, you know, cancer, for example, we don't talk about the underlying cause. We talk about this, this, this set of behaviors. And so the cause of depression or substance abuse in different people can vary, although there is a strong genetic component. So that something like 50% uh, of the variability in, in people with depression can be uh, explained by genetics. So... Just to give you a little bit of idea of some of the brain regions involved, um, the frontal cortex and the hippocampus, the frontal cortex, which is your executive decision maker, and the hippocampus, which is involved in laying down long-term memories, these two parts of the uh, brain mediate some of the cognitive features of depression. Like, for example, people feel worthless, they focus on particular aspects of their lives, they feel guilty, um, etc. And, su- and the, the suicidality seems to be related to these two structures. And then, of course, there's the, the brain regions that are involved in emotion regulation and reward. So these are, you know, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, etc. And these two are also affected by both disorders. So, Okay, in terms of suicide itself, it's actually relatively common. Uh, In 2011, it was the 10th most common cause of death, taking the lives of some almost like 38 or 39,000 people. And that's actually, apropos of our conversation of last week, slightly less, just slightly less than the flu. So the flu is still more deadly, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. But the suicide rate has also stayed relatively steady, but it did have a slight decrease at the turn of the millennium and then a slow increase around 2007 at the start of the recession. 
Um, the highest rate of suicide is in people aged 45 to 64. The next highest is in the over 85 bracket. So we actually don't think of, you know, we think of suicide in, you know, young kids who, who are, you know, in teenage angst. But in fact, uh, most people who, who commit suicide are, are quite, are older. Men are four times more likely to be successful than women, accounting for almost 80% of suicides in 2011. White people are more likely than, uh, with, with rates triple that of Asians, blacks, and Hispanics. And 50% of suicides are by firearms. So, you know, it's the, that, gun, there's, there's there's guns. the guns. So, and wow. one, I'll say one last thing, and that is that suicide vulnerability increases in under different circumstances. Like, for example, coming out of rehab, a person is actually at higher risk. And so if you have anyone who's showing signs of like tying loose ends or revising wills, or suddenly, even if they seem better, more calm, more accepting, it's actually a red flag. And, you know, suicide is a problem that needs to be taken very seriously. And if you have someone who takes, who is threatening suicide, please call 1-800-SUICIDE. Well, I just want to say that obviously I love Robin Williams too. And I, if I had to pick out the things I love the best, it was this, I don't know how many people know he was doing these, you know, Terry Gilliam was one of the Monty Python members. And uh, there were several Terry Gilliam films that uh, Robin Williams was in, including The Fisher King and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And I thought those were, those were just completely awesome. Um, let me, let me shift back to uh, depression. Why, Indre, is it the case that it is so, hard to treat. I mean, the cliche understanding would be that it's chemical, right? And so you just need uh, a different chemical, don't you? Or maybe not. Well, I mean, everything in your brain is chemical, okay. <laughs> right? It's, it's chemical and electrical. And the problem is, is that just as you described, it's, 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 uh, you know, the symptoms are variable, and we don't know the underlying cause. And in fact, probably when two people come with somewhat overlapping but slightly different symptoms, they, the cause could actually be quite different. And we don't study the cause yet. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to find out what the cause of depression is, but it's a complicated disorder. And so what we treat are the symptoms. Um, you know, it's not as easy as a tumor where you can go in and excise it. And there you go, you can see it, we know how to battle it. Um, we can't see often what the cause of depression is. You know, we see changes in the brain. We actually see structural changes. So some regions of the brain get smaller or bigger, but we don't know if this is a result or the cause. And I think that that's really where the work has to be done is to try to figure out, you know, before a person comes to you with these symptoms, you know, what's going on in their brains? Can we see differences in their brains before symptoms uh, come on that can give us an idea of what's actually causing them? Got it. Well, still, mental health, you know, treating mental health is still just a giant area where we fall short. Absolutely. And there's a lot of stigma associated with it, you know, and I think that even even the backlash that, you know, the fact that his his daughter has had to remove herself from social media because people are being insensitive. I mean, it just shows you that if he had cancer, people wouldn't have be reacting that way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a stigma associated with mental health, and it's really sad. And I really wish it would just stop. Uh, so with that, I think we'll take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Anthony Ingraffia. So recently, Indre, and don't ever do this, I drove my car. I had help, but I drove it 1,100 miles from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans. That was exhausting. Going back was exhausting. The only good thing, <laughs> almost, uh, was that I actually was able to, and this shows you uh, why the great courses are convenient. I was actually able to listen to great courses, lectures while driving, because you just plug your iPhone into the cars like little doohickey, and then you're like listening to a lecture, and then you drive an hour listening to a lecture. And so I listened to Steve Novella explaining about why experts matter, and it ruled. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's a really great course. One of the things that I, I think is also really apropos of our conversation today is this idea of the biases that we come with, you know, and, and understanding what those biases are and then fighting them using critical thinking is something that uh, Steve Novell is really passionate about. Right. And again, we're talking about the great course entitled Your Deceptive Mind, a Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills by Dr. Steve Novella, a prior guest of this podcast. And we like it a lot. And now for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. You can order your very own copy of Your Deceptive Mind by Dr. Stephen Novella and get 80% off the original price. But this savings is only available for a limited time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Anthony and Graffio, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Good to be with you today, Chris. 
It's excellent to have you. Uh, I've wanted to do a show on the subject of fracking for a long time. Uh, and so, you know, this is just, you know, a fulfillment of something I've really wanted to do. So we asked you on to talk about the science of fracking, what the frack we know about fracking. And at the outset, it's going to be really important to define our terms. And even here, there is confusion. So maybe to start with, you can just tell us what it is. I'm glad you said let's define our terms uh, because I would prefer that we not talk about fracking very much but talk about the real essence uh, of the problem, which is shale. Okay. Uh, so people want to identify the larger problem of extracting hydrocarbons from shale, which is really what this is all about, by just using a, a, a placeholder called fracking. Mm-hmm. But that's like saying uh, you want to talk about uh, 35,000 people killed in automobile accidents in the United States last year. Uh, so let's talk about the internal combustion engine. Hmm. I don't know if you got that analogy, but the point is that fracking is just one one of many enabling technologies uh, that the industry has evolved uh, in order to extract uh, the last remaining significant part of the hydrocarbon global warehouse. It's the end. It's the end of the fossil fuel era. era. Uh, and they went to the darkest, dankest, farthest reaches of that warehouse uh, to get to shale last because it's so darn difficult to get stuff out. But it's not just fracking. It's everything that comes before fracking and everything that comes after fracking, which should be of, of concern. And I hope we get to talk about today. Oh, we will. Um, but, but we still should get out what the actual process is, because even that, I think people don't really know. I mean, you know, so I mean, they know what they have some sense of what drilling is. Um, but even there, it's not just drilling. It's going horizontal, right? So maybe if you can just, you know. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, uh, first, I'll tell you what the industry calls it. It's called well stimulation. Uh, and the reason why they call it well stimulation, fracking, is that in this case, in shale, you can't get oil or gas out of shale very easily because the shale is very impermeable. Uh, so you have to stimulate it. And that means effectively increasing its permeability, the ability for, for fluids like gas or oil to come out of the shale uh, by reopening all the natural cracks and joints in bedding planes that exist in shale. So fracking is a process by which a very large volume of liquid called fracking fluid is injected into a well which has been drilled laterally along a shale bed for a mile or more at very high pressures, pressures approaching what you would get if you put, uh, say, 10 SUVs on your fingertip. Wow. And when I say very large volume, I'm talking 5 to 10 to 20 to 30 million gallons of fracking fluid uh, in order to coax open all those existing cracks and joints in bedding planes that exist in the shale because that's where over the last two to 500 million years, the oil and gas has migrated. It's stored not so much in the shale. It's stored in those natural cracks, uh, which were formed by gas pressure. So you give the well access to all those natural cracks by reopening them and what's been stored in those natural cracks comes thundering back out the well um, and up to the surface of the earth where it does its dastardly deed to climate environment. Got it. Um, so just one more question just so that everybody has this right. Um, you know, when you say drilling laterally, what that means is you go down into the earth and then you go horizontally. So the whole thing looks like, I guess, sort of like an L, the letter L. Yeah, think of it. Think of it as an L. But remember what what Mother Earth, not Mother Jones, what Mother <laughs> Earth put down there is a is a layer of shale which goes whichever way it wants to. It's not perfectly flat. It's not perfectly horizontal. It's usually what it is. It's convoluted and bent. And one of the enabling technologies, in addition to fracking, uh, that has unlocked this previously unusable resource is the ability to drill in any direction you want, including not only straight down, uh, but taking a a sharp turn and going along the shale bed that might be horizontal, it might be some, somewhat inclined, but it's not necessarily straight. You can drill just about anywhere you want for just about any distance nowadays. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they can blast water down and across or down down, and then down at an angle. Um, you know, yes. Got it. So one more thing before we get started, um, you know, you have a, obviously a background in engineering. And so I wanted to ask both about, you know, how you come to this and also what you would say that 
your basic view is? I mean, would it be fair to call you anti-fracking um, or how would you put it? No, it wouldn't be accurate to call me anti-fracking. My original doctoral studies back in the 1870s was in rock fracture mechanics. Uh, remember, the 1970s was the era of energy crisis number one. And uh, young people like me were anxious to do something for our country. We had already been to the moon. That was done. So now we were going to solve the energy crisis by figuring out how to get more energy out of Mother Earth. And a prime way to do that back then was to do more research on fracking. So I spent 20, 25 years working with the oil and gas industry as a researcher at Cornell University uh, and as a consultant on a variety of projects uh, for many operators and service providers in the oil and gas industry, helping them figure out how best to get oil and gas out of rock. Um, so with that background, um, up until about 2002, 2003, uh, we were very serious about trying to get oil and gas out of things like sandstone, carbonate rocks, uh, offshore, onshore. Uh, but in the background, some people were studying how to get oil and gas out of shale. And when that finally came to a point where it became commercially viable, uh, more or less 10 years ago, and I realized how they had figured it out, I was appalled. Um, and that's what turned me not against fracking, but against anything shale. Um, so if I can expand on that a little bit, <laughs> here's my personal policy. Um, humankind will always need fossil energy and fossil fuels for some uses. We will always need lubricants. It's going to be a few generations before we figure out how to fly on a battery. Uh, so we need fuel for aircraft. We will need to use certain fossil fuels for certain industrial processes, for creating certain materials, including medicinal things. But we should have stopped or se severely slowed down our use of fossil fuels for what I call stupid reasons decades ago. And those stupid reasons are heating our homes, driving our cars, and generating electricity because we have far more efficient far more useful and far less polluting and climate-influencing ways of heating our homes, moving our vehicles, and generating electricity. So I am vehemently against the use of shale to produce hydrocarbons, but I am not against the use of fracking to get hydrocarbons when we need them. Well, let me, let's get to some of uh, the environmental consequences, uh, and there are more that have been cited than we can cover <laughs> in the time that we have. Um, but let's start out with one that, at least as I read it, seems to be one of the less scientifically contested things. And this is the idea of earthquakes that are associated either with the actual act of fracking, as we've now defined what it is, or with the storage of wastewater that results because the water comes back up. And sometimes they put it back in the ground. Um, and apparently both of these things can contribute to earthquakes. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. There is now, in my opinion, a scientific consensus that human-induced seismicity does occur when what you call the, the liquid waste, the flow back from the fracking process, those millions of gallons of frac fluid that I mentioned before go into a well, uh, much of that comes back to the surface, and it has to be captured, it has to be temporarily stored, and then it has to be ultimately disposed of because it's now a hazardous liquid. And the usual means of disposing of frac flowback has been to inject it back under the earth uh, into what are called waste injection wells, uh, EPA Class II regulated waste injection wells. They were enabled by the, the Clean Water Act of the early 1970s. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of such wells all across the country. The problem now is that we have gone on this rampage of shale gas development, which uses much more fracking fluid, usually about 100 times more fracking fluid than traditional wells. So we have a huge waste disposal problem. So we've been, in many cases, overloading these waste disposal wells by injecting far too much waste fluid at too high a pressure over too short a period of time. And in doing so, we have, I'm going to use uh, seismicity terms here, we've mobilized pre-existing stable faults. So 
your listeners understand, I think, that an earthquake occurs when you have slip along a fault, uh, a, a crack, a pre-existing crack and the rock slips. Well, this injection, over-injection, lubricates those faults and changes the pressure on them. Uh, either of those alone or in combination can cause a fault which was previously stable for eons to now suddenly slip. And this is what has happened in such strange places as Ohio, Oklahoma, British Columbia, Texas, Arkansas, and England. So it's now – five years ago, the, the industry laughed at scientists who were saying, you're doing it. Um, but now the industry is no longer laughing. They're saying, uh, yeah, yeah uh, OK. But we have hundreds of thousands of wells and very few of them are causing earthquakes. Well, that's not very satisfactory to the people who are living over these earthquake sites uh, because now we're faced with the task, the scientific task of figuring out which waste injection wells are most likely – to cause earthquakes when they're used for waste injection. And unfortunately, the way the laws were written back in the 1970s, there, because there were many kinds of waste injection wells uh, that were created by regulation, uh, the type that's used for oil and gas waste does not require any seismic investigation or seismic design. So we're caught in a regulatory hole right now until the EPA and or Congress changes the situation. Uh, right now, companies are free to continue to use waste injection wells for supposed safe perpetual storage of large volumes and increasing volumes of waste. What's so weird about this is that it seems to me that, uh, look, I don't know a ton about geology, but I do have the hunch that we know where faults are, right? <laughs> if we look, we can find them. Yeah, it's not a big mystery, right? So, <laughs> so no. you could probably put it where they're not, I would think. I mean, if, even if you're going to put it anywhere. That would, be a, that would be a design objective, yes. <laughs> okay, so that... Now, so the, the second part of the problem that you mentioned is that is also now scientific consensus that the actual act of hydraulic fracturing can trigger anthropomorphic seismicity, human-induced seismicity. Again, the industry scoffed at that notion. Uh, they admit that the process of hydraulic fracturing is, in fact, a seismic process because you're causing uh, pre-existing joints and faults to open and move. That's the whole definition I gave you a few minutes ago of fracking. But they said that the intensity of such events was, was so low as to be negligible until they started getting magnitude 2 and 3 earthquakes in faraway places like British Columbia and in England. And so now the industry admits, yes, under certain circumstances, since we're injecting such large volumes of fluid under extremely high pressure, much higher pressure than we're using in injection wells, uh, it is possible under certain circumstances that fracking itself can cause human-induced earthquakes. Wow. But, it, but if, am I right in thinking that the first kind of earthquake we talked about has potential to be bigger? Yes, so far. That is correct. By observation, that has been correct. Okay. Well, I think that there's even more we could say about this, but I want to I wanna cover a couple other things. So let's go on to another huge issue, and this is one where you've been heavily involved, published on this. Uh, and this is the subject of methane emissions um, from this whole, you know, operation of unconventional oil and gas drilling. Now, people say, you know, natural gas burns cleaner than coal, so switching to it reduces our carbon emissions. You're not, you're not sure that's the case. I'm absolutely sure it's not the case. Okay. Um, so let me explain things as clearly as possible. Uh, when you take energy equivalent amounts of coal, oil, and natural gas and burn them, natural gas produces far less carbon dioxide, I emphasize carbon dioxide, than burning oil or coal. So yes, natural gas burns cleaner from a carbon dioxide point of view. But it is not a clean fossil fuel. That's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a clean fossil fuel because burning any fossil fuel produces carbon dioxide, which by definition means it's unclean from a climate change point of view. But that's only a very small part of the story because natural gas is methane, CH4. And it's a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. How much more potent depends upon how long you're willing to measure the potency. And since climate scientists now tell us we only have two to three decades 
uh, to do something about reducing uh, all carbon emissions, not just carbon dioxide but methane. We only have two or three decades. It's appropriate to use that time period to measure the relative potency of methane compared, compared to carbon dioxide. And when you do that, when scientists do that, they find as recently as a few months ago with the latest IPCC report that methane is about 80 to 90 times not 80 to 90 percent, but 80 to 90 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide over that time period. That means that a very small percentage of methane getting into the atmosphere unburned, it's not becoming carbon dioxide, it gets into the atmosphere as methane, a very small percentage of that has the same effect as a very large amount of carbon dioxide. So the, the message here is methane is really important in our fight against climate change. And natural gas is methane. So if in the process of drilling, fracking, transporting by pipeline, compressing, processing, storing, uh, bringing to our cities and industries and putting into distribution pipelines methane, natural gas, some of it leaks into the atmosphere, that some better be really small. Otherwise, we're, <laughs> we're not helping the situation at all by switching um, our vehicles or our electricity from coal or oil to natural gas. We're making the situation worse. Uh, and that's the opinion that my colleagues and I at Cornell came to when we published our, uh, our paper in 2011. Is there enough? Um, I mean, I'm sure there's uncertainty, huge uncertainty about exactly how much is getting out. Um, is it possible that it is on the low end such that you wouldn't have to worry or you're pretty convinced it's, it's too much? I don't think it's possible. Um, when we published our paper, there was no, there were no measurements that were being made. There were estimates. The EPA is required to make estimates based on industry input of how much methane is getting into the atmosphere from oil and gas operations unburned. And those estimates today, as we sit today, EPA estimates that about two and a half percent of all the methane produced by oil and gas operations in the United States gets into the atmosphere unburned. Since 2011, many have now gone out and started to make measurements, uh, including NOAA, uh, academics, national labs, and every single measurement that has been made, not an estimate, but an actual field measurement at various locations around the country, every single measurement has concluded that the percentage of methane leaking into the atmosphere from oil and gas operations is far greater than 2.5%. Um, I think the best estimate right now uh, is somewhere around 5%, and that's way more, way, way more than it would take uh, to make natural gas a, quote, cleaner alternative to coal for electricity generation or a cleaner alternative to gasoline or diesel for transportation. So we're in, a, we're in a very precarious position. You might have read recently that we have um, large plumes of methane also now being detected in the Arctic Ocean from the melting of what are called methane hydrates. More recently, we've seen relatively large craters formed in Siberia. Well, everybody saw the Siberia crater picture, yeah. Melting of permafrost, mm -hmm. that's methane. <laughs> so we're, we're already into what climate scientists have feared, and that's the positive feedback loops, wherein anthropogenic climate change caused mostly by the use of fossil fuels, not just the burning of them, but also the emission of them, has heated the earth and the atmosphere such that we're now getting more emissions of methane that have been stored safely in permafrost and the methane hydrates, and that exacerbates the heating of the earth and so we're already well into what is what's called, unfortunately, a positive feedback. The farther we get into it, the worse we get. We're on the downslope. So let me just ask you one more thing about these methane analyses, because um, not not for the Arctic, but for for gas drilling and, and and all the steps of the you know the chain and the production of natural gas. You know, you said with earthquakes, you said there was scientific consensus. Could, would you similarly say that you have consensus here? Or you still have a lot of people disagreeing with you on on the fugitive methane. I think it's less certain from a scientific consensus point of view that any particular uh, percentage 
plus or minus because we're never going to know exactly how much methane leaks nationally from all oil and gas operations. We can only know what we think is a most expected value with an error bar plus or pl- plus or minus. I don't think we're quite yet at a certain a scientific consensus as we could be, but we're much farther along than we were three years ago. Um, and I think that we're getting to a point where the consensus is going to be somewhere around 5%. Now, is are there steps being taken on these emissions, EPA steps, to do something about them that might make it less of a problem? Yes and no. The EPA ha- now has a series of white papers that have been issued for public comment um, that address a number of possible sources for methane emissions. Uh, but as of yet, the EPA has not begun to enforce anything significant other than uh, emissions associated with uh, fracking. And there they are required as of 2015, January 1st, that all new, I emphasize new, gas wells, I emphasize gas, shall use what's called reduced emission completion processes. That is, during the flowback period after fracking, Companies drilling new gas wells uh, will be required to, at the best of their technical capability, um, capture methane emitted from that particular part of the entire process. But that I emphasize that's only one part of the whole supply train of natural gas, and it only applies to new gas wells, not to old ones, and it doesn't apply to oil wells. And your listeners should understand that when you drill an oil well, you not only get oil, you get natural gas. And so the EPA has not proposed any regulations to control emissions from old gas wells that are being refracked um, or new oil wells that are being fracked. And we don't have any new EPA regulations yet for other parts of the supply chain. That's the purpose of their white papers. They're seeking public and industry input as to what, if any, regulations they're going to impose uh, all the way from upstream all the way to downstream as far as the EPA has regulatory authority. Uh, Just one more point on this, and then I want to go on to the groundwater issue because we want to get at least those three big ones in. Um, So, I mean, you know that your papers on this have obviously gotten widely criticized um, on the web, including by, you know, people who are defending the natural gas industry. uh, And they say that, you know, well, yeah, you want to find problems just to, just to paraphrase, you want to find problems with this because you don't, you know, you're against it. <laughs> um, I mean, what do you say to to critics? I say, listen to the science. Bob Howarth and Renee Santoro and I wrote that paper in 2011 to try to address a problem that nobody else was looking at, and that is the the allegation that natural gas use was good for climate change. And we determined in our paper that that was not likely the case. But we were very honest in our paper in saying that we really don't know how much methane is being emitted and we really don't yet know what impact that methane has on climate change, so we need more science. And thankfully, many scientists around the world listened to us and others and said, well, let's go out and make measurements. Let's go figure out how much is being emitted. So I'm repeating myself here, but every single methane measurement made by competent scientists in the U.S., including those working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and our most prestigious universities, every place they've gone gone out and measured methane emissions, they've measured emissions higher than we estimated, or at least in the range that we estimated. We didn't say there was 8% being emitted. We said the number was probably between 35 and 7.9%. And the consensus right now, although not complete consensus, the best papers coming out just in the last six months are estimating somewhere, as I said before, in the 5% range. So what I say to my critics is, you don't have to listen to us anymore. Forget about Howarth, Santorin, and Graffia. We don't exist anymore. Forget our paper ever existed. Listen to the scientists who are making measurements. Got it. Well, I think that this was this is the the really really big one there. Um, you know, in terms of the whole policy outlook on energy, and so let's then go on to this the one that the issue that was the first big issue. <laughs> in some sense, it might have been even superseded in some ways, but that is groundwater contamination. Everybody knows this one because they saw that scene in Gasland where the guy lights his tap on fire. 
So, you know, explain this one to us, because I understand there's different things going on. There is, you know, you might drill a well badly, and then, you know, liquids or gas might leak and travel. Or some people say that, you know, it's not it's not drilling the well badly, but it's actually happening way down deep um, where, where the fracking is, um, and that's loosening things up somehow. And I guess those are different issues. So maybe you can explain that for us. Sure. So when we talk about groundwater contamination, there are two things that I think about. One is contamination with hydrocarbons that were stored safely underground and are now being brought towards the surface by drilling and fracking. And the other is spills of chemicals at the surface. So I don't want to talk about the latter one because that's not my area of expertise. Uh, But let's talk about the former one, which you introduced by saying everybody remembers the flaming faucet seen in in Gasland 1. So how can methane or other hydrocarbon fluids get into somebody's drinking water well? And the answer is quite simple. And the industry has known it for 100 years. Wells leak. Gas and oil wells leak. When the industry says a gas or oil well has an integrity problem, that's the word they use, what they mean is that the well is no longer or perhaps never was transporting the oil or gas from an underground source directly to the surface only inside the well. That's what they mean. There's oil and gas or other hydrocarbons coming up along the outside of the well. So what your listeners have to understand, and I'm sure they do, is when you drill a hole in the ground to drill a well, the diameter of that hole is larger than the diameter of the steel pipe you put down the hole to get the oil and gas out. So now you have to create a gasket. You have to fill that, that gap. Um, and the gasketing material is, is hardened cement paste, not concrete, not reinforced concrete, not some modern polymer, some rubber gasket. It's a cement sheath that could be something like an inch or an inch and a half thick and three miles long from the surface all the way down to the, the end of the well. And there, there are two or three or four of these cement sheaths and two or three or four uh, steel casings. And the primary purpose of all those things is to make the well produce and protect the well. A secondary purpose is to protect groundwater. Uh, and when that secondary purpose fails, you have a well that's leaking outside. So hydrocarbons are coming up outside the well, which is not intentional. The industry doesn't do that on purpose. They don't want to lose its hydrocarbons. But it happens. It has always happened. I spent all day yesterday in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the North American Well Bore Integrity Conference, second one I've been to in a year. So the public relations people in the industry say there is no such thing as a wellbore integrity problem. We have four layers of steel and four layers of cement, and our wells don't leak. But every six months, industry leaders get together to talk about the problem that doesn't exist. It does exist. And we have facts and figures and statistics to back it up from industry experience and from regulator experience. So with this one, would it be fair to say that, okay, you said that industry's known that some percentage of wells leak. Would it be fair for a defender uh, of drilling and fracking and all the rest to say, yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, there's bad actors or, you know, people make mistakes sometimes, but mostly we don't make mistakes. And what you need to do is regulate this properly um, so that everybody's playing by a, a good set of rules that would prevent these kind of problems. It's fair to say that, but it doesn't make any sense Okay, <laughs> uh, because you can't regulate. <laughs> a regu- regulation is a set of words. Yeah. You can say, your well shall not leak. That doesn't mean the well won't leak. Yeah, And you can say, but if your well leaks, we're going to fine you. But that doesn't make the well not leak. So the point is that the statistics show that every place, including over the last seven or eight years of development in Pennsylvania, which has the world's toughest regulations, somewhere around seven, eight, nine percent of all the shale gas wells that have been drilled in Pennsylvania in the last seven or eight years leaked within the first year or two. So it's the same experience that we've had worldwide. It's just really difficult. Uh, to cement a well in such a way that it doesn't leak ever. So the other reason why this is that uh, excuse or allegation on the part of the industry that, uh, you know, we make mistakes, life has to go on, we're talking about shale gas and shale oil. And as I said before, that's that's a a scale problem. You're not just going to drill one well on a pad 
over a shale formation. You're going to drill many wells, 8, 10, 12, 16, 20 wells in one pad. Uh, the probability that when you have that many wells that close together on one pad that you're going to get some wells leaking becomes really high. And when you realize that you're only going to have to go about a mile in each direction for the next pad, for the next 8, 10, 12 wells, and you realize that you're going to have about 8 wells per square mile over an entire area, like two-thirds of Pennsylvania uh, or half of Ohio, in highly densely populated regions where the people now have to be forced to live inside the industry and industrial zone, and there are water wells. In some cases, one water well can be surrounded by dozens of gas wells. The probability of contamination of water wells goes up. So we're not talking about grandpa and grandma's uh, oil and gas well out in Oklahoma. We're talking about shale gas and oil development uh, in relatively heavily populated areas where a lot of people are dependent upon private water wells for their drinking water. Got it. And I think that that's really why, you know, there are so many scientific issues with 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 fracking and with the whole unconventional oil uh, un- unconventional gas development is that it's such a big scale and it's so new <laughs> that you know just all kinds of things happen because it's everywhere and they're doing all these things and there are people among them. I mean, you know, there's problems left and left and right is what it seems like just because of just because of the rapidity of the change. I guess that's exactly correct. You, you taught you touched on the two factors um, that we find in our research are most causative of the major problems, uh, methane emissions and groundwater problems, speed of development and scale. Uh, When natural gas was priced at nearly $14 a thousand cubic foot back in 2008, hundreds of operators wanted to drill gas wells. And the faster they got those wells in the ground, the faster they got those wells in the production, uh, bonanza. Corners were cut. Regulators weren't, weren't ready. Untrained crews, 24-7 operations in Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia uh, with crews that were used to working in Oklahoma and Texas had never seen snow and had never seen a hill. Suddenly found themselves drilling a heck of a lot of wells in a very short period of time and many of them went bad. So, and scale. You, you can't just drill one shale gas well or one shale oil well and move on. Um, look at what's happened in Texas, 18,000 Barnett shale wells within 20 miles of downtown Dallas. Pennsylvania is slated to have approximately 100,000 Marcellus wells and maybe tens of thousands of more Utica wells. And now they're talking about tapping what are called the upper Devonian shales, the shallow ones. So industry was telling us when they first started developing shale gas that don't worry, our wells are seven or 8,000 feet deep. There's seven or 8,000 feet of impenetrable, impermeable, solid rock between your groundwater and our wells. And yet at the conference I attended yesterday, people were talking about how they're going to be drilling for shale gas in Pennsylvania with wells only two or 3,000 feet deep, which means they're only 1,000 feet below fresh water. Where's the defense mechanism now? Let me let me turn uh, turn the conversation a little bit because um, uh, you know we've we've I think we've covered all of the all of the topics the big topics now I mean certainly there are others and so I guess I view you if I view you in an argument with someone it isn't necessarily like you know sort of a, a kind of a right wing um, fossil fuel booster as much as it's sort of more of a centrist or even Obama administration representative who takes an all of the above, as it's called, approach to energy, which is to say that, you know, they like renewables, yes, but they also like, you know, natural gas, and they like oil to some extent, and they don't like coal, um, they like nuclear. So, you know, could they not interpret all this information to support their point of view and just say, yes, we know it has problems, um, but we need to fix it? Um, Because look, it's already happening anyway, can't really stop it. So we need to just make it better, and then we need it to be part of our portfolio. No, that is not my position. Okay. No, that's the position um, of the, uh, make, the all of the above folks. That is the position of the all of the above. That's uh, adherence, which includes the president, most of the Democratic Party, um, reluctantly, uh, everybody else on the political spectrum. Uh, but I interpret all of the above as meaning everything from below. And I'm sorry, I said it before, I'll say it again. Uh, There are really nowadays, from a climate change point of view, really stupid uses for fossil fuels. 
they got us to where we are in Western civilization. I give the oil and gas industry and the coal industry credit. They got us the industrial revolution and, and all the benefits. But their time is done. Time is over. For all the benefits that we got sociologically, economically, there were harms done, environmental harms done to water and air. And now finally we realize that the greatest harm of all is still being done, and that's climate change. So it's time to bring the industry to a close. Not tonight, not tomorrow, but as quickly as possible in the next two decades. We have to effectively shut down the use of fossil fuels for what I call stupid reasons. Um, I don't want to repeat myself. We will always need some fossil fuels for some reasons, but we have uh, sun, we have wind, and we have water uh, to heat our homes, to generate electricity, and to move our, our earthbound vehicles. And the quicker we do that, the more chance we give our kids and our grandkids to not inherit a very, very bad climate situation, uh, which we're already seeing develop around us. Well, I just want to, I, I do want to make sure to just give them their due, though, because I mean, there's a lot of smart people who are in a different place. And so I guess, uh, I guess I just ask one, one more question, which is that, you know, we've laid out a lot of science, and I think you've laid it out carefully. I guess, could they say in their defense that the science, and they let's say they don't disagree with you about any of it, could they say that it's also consistent with the idea that you could, you know, to quote a politician, mend it, not end it, that you could fix all these problems? Would they be able to say that um, and say that I, my view is still strong, I can still support all of the above? Again, no. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, and and basic, basically because we're out of time. Yeah. Uh, name a problem that you want to fix. You want to fix leaky pipelines? Uh, look at the couple million miles of pipeline you have to fix. Who's going to pay for it and how long would it take? Uh, you want to go out and find the uh, the, the 200,000 leaking gas and oil wells in North America, most of which we don't know where they are because therefore you can't know how much they're leaking or what they're leaking. Who's going to do that? How long is that going to take? You, you want to stop exporting natural gas to foreign countries um, because all that's going to do is increase the demand for methane and therefore increase the amount of methane getting into the atmosphere. The, we, we've run out of time. Let me repeat that. Uh, for those who say that we can regulate our way around this, just give us time and we'll fix the problems. I'm sorry. We've had 100 years of commercial oil and gas development at, at very large quantities throughout the world. It's time is, time is over. We've damaged the atmosphere uh, too much and uh, it would take too long. It would take decades and billions of dollars to begin to fix the problems that we know have existed for decades. And by then, it will be too late. Understood. Well, Professor Ingrafia, thank you. This has been very enlightening. We covered so much. We learned a great deal. Uh, and we really appreciate having you with us on Inquiring Minds. Chris, thank you very much for the opportunity. Good to be with you again. So, Chris, one of the things that always freaks me out, because, of course, I live in California, is this notion that we might be creating more earthquakes. Yeah. You know, we've had a lull here in the Bay Area, knock on wood, literally. Uh, but, you know, we're all waiting for the big one. And the fact that you we can actually do something as a species to increase the likelihood of earthquakes is frightening. I, You know, it's it's so hard to believe when you just take it in the abstract. And yet you have papers published in science you know to, they're, they're finding it you know it's it's you wouldn't think that a liquid under the underground would change a fault but i mean i'm sorry they're they're the experts and i'm not so yeah and you know i think one of the problems is that most people be like oh but you haven't had an earthquake in so long it's all good right but um the truth is is that we're just not very good at understanding randomness of events just because it's been a number of years since our last earthquake that doesn't mean we're not going to have three massive ones next weekend <laughs> you know um but when you're so getting them in oklahoma and ohio and all these places where i mean at least california yeah. is actually known to get them um but so suddenly that's they're right. in the midwest and that's why and you're and there's a lot of different you know seismic activity that people haven't seen before it's just a red red flag and and i'm i'm amazed but you know it's actually turns out to be surprisingly one of the less contested issues in the fracking debate amazing so you know here's just another plug let's go for a different energy source <laughs> yes as, as soon as possible 
So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you all for joining us for Inquiring Minds. You can visit us at our website, motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast, And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or even in a course that you think I might want to teach on the great courses we are looking for my next course. Uh, you can send that to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, which is bringing you the world's greatest professors. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming, or on DVD and CD, and best of all, you can listen to them or watch them at your own pace, without pressure, there's no homework, there are no exams. And now, for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one course, Your Deceptive Mind by Professor Stephen Novella. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in collaboration with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.